Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, supercomputer and a chip, solar system balls, and knowing yourself. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Jeffrey Park to discuss seismic monitoring. Also, we'll find out what causes eyes to have colors. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty good. It's been a fast week, huh? It just seemed like yesterday we were doing the show, almost. Isn't it like Moore's Law that things just get faster and faster? As they get smaller and smaller? Right. I feel myself getting smaller every day. Jeez. Is that your ego or your... Uh... It's shrinkage, is what it is. <laughs> Any crackage with that? It'll, if it shrinks enough, you'll get crackage. <laughs> Anyway, so how was your Valentine's Day? It was only a couple of days ago. Valentine's? Oh, it was beautiful. Filled was, with love, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Flowers are great, by the way. Better when you're delivering them, too. And getting them. I'm just that kind of guy, you know. You have to give to get. Yes. So, speaking of getting faster, it looks like we could be up for a revolution in microprocessors. A Another one. I mean, I thought we were sort of approaching the limit of how small we could get with these things. Well, you would see that with the uh, the Intel-based architectures, the mm-hmm. one that we use in our Windows-based PCs. And what we've seen is we've hit a roadblock around... 3.8 gigahertz with the Intel Pentium in the last year or so and it looks like it may not go that much further due to constraints with the materials they use in the architecture but a new processor architecture called the Cell made by IBM, Sony and Toshiba will very likely give an order of magnitude potential of processing power over the Intel architecture and could probably even threaten its uh, dominance in the uh, semiconductor world. So is this making use of the new quantum properties of people trying to make quantum computing type elements or is this the new architecture? It's just a new architecture in such a way that, to put it simply, there are eight separate processing cores in each chip, and they work in a synergistic way such that it's ultra-high speed compared to a single chip right now which only has one large processor on it. The nice thing about these eight cores on the chip is that they can all run different programs simultaneously, Mm. and they can run Windows, Linux, or whatever else you have in mind. And probably one of the first known applications for this will be the PlayStation 3. It's always the games that come along and drive the the industry, I think. Right, and they actually predict using this architecture and graphics chip will make them go 10 to 20 times faster, even at current speeds. Cool. I mean, so basically what they're doing is they're just creating parallel processing units. So it's surprising that the folks at Intel hadn't thought about trying to do this earlier. at some point, they, they originally thought they could, but they start <coughs> hitting these roadblocks to a lot of uh, fundamental limitations with sure. the materials and the architectures that they hadn't foreseen. Mm-hmm. You build yourself into a roadblock there, building on top of what you already have, right? Right. This is widely reported, but there's an r- excellent article in the recent edition of New Scientist. Well, 
Okay, Frank, so are you in touch with who you are? All the time. I know myself. <laughs> it's good to know yourself, as Socrates or Plato said. Yeah, one of those uh, Greeks. <laughs> Turns out, though, that when you self-report your ethnicity, you might be more in touch with your genetic makeup than you know. So I may be black? I don't know. Is that what you put down on the uh, paper there? <laughs> no, but just passing thought. But sometimes I just choose randomly. You're Jew, right? I'm Scottish, really, is what the thing is. But it turns out, though, that a group of researchers led by Neil Risch, now at the University of California, San Francisco here, he uh, was profiling 3,636 people living in 15 different locations and had them self-report their ethnicity and compared it with their genetic DNA profile. Uh-huh. And what he found out was that the self-reporting of ethnicities among all these people mm-hmm. in several standard categories correlated very strongly with their genetic makeup, suggesting that, of course, these people knew pretty much which ethnicity they were. Uh-huh. And also it suggests that if they know which ethnicity they are, it's a strong indication of their genetic makeup right. for various types of genetic diseases. Right. As a result, he suggests that, in fact, self-reporting ethnicity is probably a lot more convenient than doing any type of genetic tests in many cases, hmm. which could save a lot of money. Okay quite fascinating because, in fact, when they looked at the uh, profiles, it looked like in only five of the 3,636 subjects did the uh, self-report clash with the genetic data. In fact, they were even able to localize it down to distinctions within classes, like in Asian, between Chinese and Japanese. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I wonder what is Michael Jackson? Didn't he have a song about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter if you're black and white. Uh, well, clearly not to him. <laughs> so this was very fascinating work, and again, it was published in American Journal of Human Genetics. So what happens when you get too much sunlight? I burn! <laughs> you just melt away, huh? You can only take about... A couple of flashlights? <laughs> yeah, I need the SPF 3000. <laughs> <laughs> so plants have a very interesting mechanism for defending themselves when they become too excited. Ooh, okay. So it turns out when there's too much light, the chlorophyll becomes too excited and it can actually self-damage itself through oxidation. And there's actually a biophysical mechanism that protects that, a process called feedback deexcitation. And until now, it has been a mystery. But a team led by Graham Fleming, a chemist who had birth and plant biologist Krishna Nyogi at the Lawrence Berkeley National Labs now show that there's a carotenoid, zeaxanthin, which takes some of the energy, the overexcitation energy from the chlorophyll, and then later is able to dissipate this as heat. So yeah. it safely takes away that excess energy. Oh, interesting. Basically, it gets into an exciting state and then uh, releases the ener- excess energy as heat. Right. You transform one form of energy, the excited electron oh, state sure. energy, into uh, thermal energy, sure. just the vibrational energy. Okay. Actually, animals have a number of uh, very important issues, also damaging sunlight, especially DNA breakage, right? Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of DNA repair mechanisms that are specifically targeted for repairing crosslinks due to sun damage. Right. One of those many adaptations as well. Pretty cool. So this is reported in a recent edition of Science, uh, Volume 307. Okay, very cool. All right, Frank, so are you having gas problems? All the time. What do you do about that? I just let it go into the air. <laughs> or should I say the wind? Well, you know, sometimes if you have enough gas, it can aggregate into planets. Wow. I haven't seen any lumps <laughs> yet, but... Then you would have smaller gas particles orbiting around you. Wow. So for quite some time, it had been thought that the formation of planets was limited to certain size stars, in fact, relatively massive stars, that are able to support the aggregation of planets around it. Right. But it turns out that researchers during the last decade, in fact, finding flattened disks of gas around very young stars, much smaller than previously predicted. And now, 
turns out that they've extended even further to seeing planets orbiting around brown dwarfs. Brown dwarfs? Yes, these are gaseous balls about 75 times the mass of Jupiter. Okay. But still not quite massive enough to ignite hydrogen fusion. Oh, so still kind of airy, huh? <laughs> still kind of gassy. Yes. So this is quite fascinating because it basically extends a lot of what people have thought about planetary formation and the ranges of systems where planets could evolve. Okay. And so it's only recently that researchers have been able to discern these brown dwarfs, and they've used new satellite and telescope observation techniques. Two teams, one led by astronomer Kevin Lumen of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He found extra emissions of infrared light from a faint dwarf about 15 times Jupiter's mass. Mm -hmm. And another team used ground-based telescopes to look for radiation from gas and dust spiraling into the dozens of brown dwarfs. That was led by Ray J. Awar Donhana of the University of Toronto in Ontario, Canada. So it's quite fascinating, and it suggests that even just the little brown dwarf can have planets orbiting around it. Wow. I love planets. I love dwarfs. I love dwarfy planets. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Professor Jeffrey Park from Yale University will join us to discuss seismographic monitoring. So stay tuned. Berkeley Rocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, while nothing can undo the devastation from the massive tsunami that recently struck in Southeast Asia, lives can be saved in the future if scientists can rapidly characterize the earthquakes that caused tsunami. The quick response of the Global Seismographic Network to the 26th December Sumatran Adanaman earthquake offers clear opportunities to reduce the amount of time before an emergency response, and assistance could be dispatched to a similarly affected area in the future. Well, join us today to discuss improving the Global Seismographic Network is Professor Jeffrey Park. Professor Park is the chairman of the Environmental Studies Program at Yale University, and he's the former president of the Seismology Section of the American Geophysical Union. He is the author of several scientific studies, including a recent report in EOS, Transaction of the American Geophysical Union, where he discusses the seismographic network and the Sumatran quake. Professor Park, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. Good to be with you. Uh, well, certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and sure, a lot of people are interested in, I guess, the outcomes from this recent tsunami quake, in particular uh, detection of tsunamis in the future. But some people might not know there's already a seismographic network more or less in place. I wonder if you tell us a little about that. Yeah, there are well over 100 of these uh, stations in the network, of the Global Seismographic Network, 137 to be exact. 
And a large fraction of these report their data in real time over satellite links or the Internet. So the data from all around the world is constantly streaming into data centers where it can be observed just as it's being recorded. I see. And where are these uh, data centers located? It's beamed to a couple different places. The U.S. Geological Survey has one in Colorado for the uh, National Earthquake Information Center. But they are also beamed directly to the Pacific Tsunami Warning System in Hawaii. Oh, I see. As far as the detectors go, are they evenly distributed across the globe or are they localized in certain locations? They're obviously concentrated a little bit in some areas where it's easy to have access and there's a, a lot of seismic activity, say, in some parts of the United States. But goal is to try to get them evenly spaced across the globe so that we get, with this network, sort of a global picture of what's happening inside the planet. We have some gaps, of course, because there's lots of water and no, no dry land in uh-huh. some places of the world. But we try to fill in as many gaps as we can. I see. And are these detectors mainly on land? Almost all of them are on land. We have, okay. in fact, the two that were closest to the Sumatran earthquake. One was on Sri Lanka, the island of Sri Lanka, and another on a tiny island called Cocos Keeling to the south of Indonesia. Were the detectors more or less concentrated in the Indian Ocean at the time? Yes, the first uh, recordings that, uh, that went to the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center were from the Indian Ocean area, specifically from Cocos Keeling. And then mm. uh, later, some stations in Australia picked it up and set off uh, automatic alarms for, for an earthquake occurrence. And I guess there are two sides to this coin, is not just the detection, but also the warning systems in place. I mean, how developed are those? Well, this is a system that in the Pacific has been used and is quite refined, actually. Mm-hmm. They're not only are they in the Pacific Ocean region to detect an impending tsunami or a, an earthquake that's large enough to create a, a potential tsunami, they actually have a second line of defense with pressure sensors on the seafloor that are actually look for the tsunami wave itself to see mm-hmm. if it really was generated by the earthquake. So you get sort of a first warning from the seismometers and then a check using seafloor pressure sensors. In this recent report, you're discussing about improving I guess, seismographic network. How is it really required for an improvement here? The first thing to note is that the real problem in preventing the loss of life in a similar sized earthquakes in the future is getting actual connections to the countries to warn them and to have any warning that we could generate transported to the people that need to be warned. Mm. However, there are a lot of things on the technical side that can be improved. First off, just having all of our stations up and running, they're often in quite remote parts of the world. And when they go down, you have to actually schedule times and to go get them and fix stations, and that would, would help if we were able to do that more. Then there are also a number of stations that are recording data but not reporting it in real time through satellite links, and that could be improved. And there are still a number of places where we could be putting in stations if we had some, some extra resources. I guess that brings up a good point. How affordable are these monitoring stations, and who really uh, funds it, and who monitors it? Well, they're funded from a number of different sources. The funding for the Global Seismographic Network is from the National Science Foundation and uh, also from the U.S. Geological Survey. Hmm. And it's operated by a nonprofit corporation called the Incorporated Research Institutions for Seismology, which is a consortium of U.S. universities that have seismology research programs. That's centered in Washington, D.C. The networks themselves are operated by both the U.S. Geological Survey and University of California at San Diego. The goals of the network, they're not just merely for warning, they're also a scientific in purpose as well? Oh yes, they are primarily for the scientific research network that has multiple uses. The initial capitalization of the network in the late 1980s, early 1990s, was partly motivated by the desire to monitor a comprehensive test ban treaty, mm. to have a source of openly available data that could be watching for uh, underground nuclear explosions mm. worldwide. Scientists, of course, want to use it to study Earth's deep interior, plate tectonics, 
and, and big earthquakes and earthquake processes. And then there are also, it gets useful for tsunami warning or for any kind of disaster warning. So what are some of the uh, scientific findings that have come out of this network? Oh, there's really a, quite quite a few. Uh. Most of the snapshots you see of uh, where seismologists are trying to model what the interior of the planet looks like, you know, plates diving down and mm. big plumes coming up, that's done with imaging, what's called seismic tomography, looking at seismic waves that are recorded by the Global Seismographic Network and similar networks that are run by the French, the Germans, the Italians, and the Japanese as well. So there's quite a bit of research also on what earthquakes, large earthquakes, are like in various places of the world to see if you can learn something about the earthquake process that we can use to help predict or anticipate future earthquakes in the United States. Yeah, I see. In regards to that, what is the, the state of the science of, in terms of predicting such earthquakes then? Well, I'd say that we're fairly far from a short-term prediction of earthquakes. That would mm. be on the time scale of months or years or, or hours, of course. Mm -hmm. But on the time scale of decades and centuries, we have a pretty good idea of where the damaging earthquakes are likely to be. And one difficulty is that we don't have a really clear understanding of how earthquakes start and how they progress. And this is sort of seismic data that the network collects for us to try to characterize the earthquake process in a way that allows us to figure out how it starts and maybe to predict it. Do you think there would actually be much of a benefit to knowing if an earthquake uh, was going to occur, say, in a year or so? Yes, because you can focus your sort of emergency readiness. You in the Bay Area, you know that there's a considerable earthquake danger pretty much all the time, and so the governments have emergency response plans all set out for the eventuality of an earthquake. Mm. And if you knew that something like uh, an earthquake were more likely in the next year rather than, say, in the next 30 years, you'd mm. be able to allocate your resources more readily. That much said, it's still pretty risky to make such predictions. It, for the most part, they, all, all techniques have not really worked out. Mm. What really, I guess, in the end needs to be done to help in the warning of earthquake when it really occurs, and how far are we along from uh, really having such a good network to establish that? Well, I'd say that because we have the infrastructure, the global seismographic network, in place, and what's needed are just to expand it and improve it in a way that increases its uptime, and also decreases the amount of time it takes to get the information into the hands of the people who can really use it. And a part of that is political, of course, but part of it is just technical, just improving the technology. Mm. Sounds like a very feasible problem to take care of. Certainly on the science side, yeah. Indeed. All right, well, it's all a very fascinating issue, and Professor Park looks like we are a little bit out of time, but I just want to thank you again for uh, joining us today on Berkeley Grocks and discussing seismographic monitoring. My pleasure, thanks. Right. And you were just listening to Professor Jeffrey Park from Yale University discussing improving seismographic monitoring. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, it's the technology update and the world-famous question of the week. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, we're back from the break, and Mike Fitzhugh is joining us for the technology update. Great. So how's everyone doing? I'm doing well. I wish I had as cool a name as Mike Fitzhugh. Everybody lusts after <laughs> my name. Everybody loves Michael Fitzhugh. <laughs> Good to have you back on the program, as always. And so uh, Thanks. It's great to be here. So anything from the trenches of technology? Technology world is heated up today, as usual. Over the past couple weeks, everybody still seems to be in a lather about Apple Computer. In a survey of brand recognition, the brand Apple came out even above Google for recognizability. Oh, right which was a nice surprise for them. Wow, at a time when all their products are getting smaller. (laughs) (laughs) Just as they disappear. Mm. Well, there's something intrinsically satisfying about an apple with a bite out of it. (laughs) That leads to its uh, image recognizability. Because everybody likes half-eaten food. Yes. (laughs) I'm sure one day we can eat their products, too. Hey, you know, if they get any smaller, like Charles's new iPod Shuffle, we might be able to swallow the next iPod. I almost made the mistake of actually eating it. I was so... (laughs) Then I'd have the music inside of me. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a party in your mouth, right? But crunchy. So while we're in the world of Apple, the um, big news today from them is uh, that they've updated the PowerBook G4. Oh, yeah. More power. So it's going from 1.5 gigahertz to 1.67, which honestly, I don't know what that what that means. Ten percent increase. If if it's bigger, I want it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in more sort of understandable figures, they've put more RAM in there, 512 megabytes. Popped in a faster DVD burner, 8x, mm-hmm. and updated the graphics card and threw in some new Bluetooth. Fancy. So now you can transfer pictures from your like the speed of molasses as opposed to the speed of glass. Well, you can get those grainy pictures in all that much faster, you know. (laughs) Well, I do have a picture of Bill Gates, except it's very, very blurry. Yeah, well, that's what you get for 0.3 megapixels, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you get for taking a picture of Bill Gates. It scared the camera. Satan can't be uh, photographed. (laughs) (laughs) So that's that's the excitement with the PowerBook. There's one final detail for the Butterfingers out there. Unlike your iPod Shuffle, which will probably gracefully bounce off the concrete, the power books aren't so happy when you drop them. But Apple added a new feature, a motion detector that will park the hard drive heads, basically making the drive much less likely to be destroyed when you uh, drop it to the ground. So now all you so have to replace is the screen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the motherboard. Fortunately, they're not including complimentary grief counseling for that sad moment they're after. But that comes extra? No, that, that's in there. It's only in the two high-end models. The okay. most expensive 15-inch, but it's expensive 17-inch. Uh, but mm-hmm. here in in our world of academia. That's <laughs> nothing. We're rolling sure. in dough. I don't know which world of academia you're living in. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if people want to find out more about uh, all the Apple innovations, where can they go? If you're interested in more about Apple, there's a nice article about it on Slashdot, or you can go to the company website at www.apple.com. So for you BlackBerry users out there, I don't know if you guys have cut on to the BlackBerry craze or not, but when I was still working in downtown San Francisco, I couldn't walk more than five feet without being bumped into by somebody who was mesmerized yeah. by their BlackBerry. As well they should be, because it is quite mesmerizing. So it sounds edible, too. Yeah. <laughs> These edible uh, devices, you know. Almost as edible as the shuffle. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so so for, the, for the BlackBerry fans out there, there is a new report out on the BBC that suggests that 
that doctors in the UK and the US have found out that all that thumb texting, writing those super important productivity boosting emails can actually lead to arthritis or even uh, damage the tendons uh-huh. in your thumb. Well, I thought carpal tunnel syndrome would uh, hit in before that, but this is the word from the doctor's mouth, uh-huh. but you're, it does seem likely that yeah. carpal tunnel would be first. You no, know, I haven't used my uh, thumbs that much since puberty, really. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think that we'd be hearing about all sorts of arthritis problems in teens given how much they're texting each other in classes and stuff like that, but no such thing yet. Apparently the BlackBerry users are doomed, though, so say the doctors. In other news around the net, there's a lot of buzz around a group of graduate students at John Hopkins University who announced that they've cracked the security behind mobilizer systems from uh, Texas Instruments, which are little chips in car keys. It matches the key to the car and prevent car theft. Mm-hmm. Basically, with some pretty cheap off-the-shelf equipment, these students at John Hopkins figured out how to break the code for these mobilizer chips and start up the Toyotas and Nissans that use them and even get free gas. Road trip! (laughs) You know, it's good to see that higher education is promoting carjacking now. (laughs) I didn't realize that was a course of study. Yeah, so it should be interesting to see. Apparently, Texas Instruments, like, you know, it's just meant to prevent car theft. Okay. So, you know, make it a little bit harder. But not foolproof. An even easier way is a lead pipe through the window. That works (laughs) almost as well, I think. Yeah, you you gotta wonder, you know, why bother sitting around for an hour trying to crack a code when you could crack the window? So that's what's going on in the world of technology. All right. Great. Mike, thanks a lot for that uh, technology update from around no the world. No problem. I will be uh, back with more exciting trouble from the world of texting. Yeah. All right. Excellent. And now here's Tokyo Kid with uh, the answer to last week's question of the week. Why do some eyes of animals have uh, color? It uh, turns out that there are uh, pigments in the back of the eye. So sometimes you get the red eye and sometimes you get the glowing eye of the tiger. Alright, that's really great there, Tokyo Kiddos. But you know, here in the Scottish Highlands, I'm busy always washing up Loch Ness Monster, because she's so dirty! But the problem is, though, to wash a Loch Ness Monster so big, you need a lot of soap. But how do you get so much soap in there? I mean, what's it made out of? Well, if you know the answer, or think you know the answer, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but hey, you just might be sparkling clean. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Therese.